Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. These people's time who you're involving in this project to everybody on every level, that time is valuable to them as well. Make sure that if you're going to commit to a film that you see it through all the way to the end and that it gets out there. And that, that's important to me. Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 36. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. Back in 2009, I set out to make what would become my first documentary film, Journey to Kathmandu. It wasn't the first documentary that I'd worked on at all. I'd edited two doc features and worked on a handful of others as a shooter, but it was my documentary directorial debut, if you will. It's a film that follows the once-in-a-lifetime journey that goats make from their farm lives in Tibet to their sacrificial deaths in Kathmandu during the height of the Dosai Festival in Nepal. Listeners of the show, aka Doc Lifers, who had subscribed to the Doc Lifer weekly newsletter in July, were given a code for a free download of the film. It was a film that, for me, took a much longer time to complete than I'd ever imagined, finally premiering in 2013. There are a number of reasons for this prolonging of completion, but as is the case with any sort of venture, nothing was without cause. That is to say, everything happened for a reason and on its own necessary timeline. And all the reasons were not necessarily even evident at the time of its occurrence. Oftentimes, lessons present themselves long after a mistake or miscue or whatever has happened. I tried as best as I could to journal my journey to Kathmandu so as to take these valuable lessons into my future filmmaking endeavors. In fact, I blogged about a number of them and included many as DVD extras for the film. Recently, I shared some email correspondence with a fellow doc lifer by the name of Dean. Dean was preparing to make his own venture into Nepal and to shoot his own first documentary film. He'd been inspired by the topics and guests that have been here on The Documentary Life. I even shared a little bit of that in a recent doc lifer community question of the week. He also suggested having an upcoming show that shared a bit of my process working on my first documentary. And that is precisely what we'll be doing here in the first segment of today's episode. Taking a look at the workflow process of one's first documentary and finding out what works and what may not be so helpful. We'll get to it after the break. Did you know that each and every episode of The Documentary Life has its own show notes? I mean, I'm sure you've heard me mention them on an episode, but have you ever actually gone and checked them out? because they often have some really nice supplemental materials that go in conjunction with that week's show. There are behind-the-scenes stills of filmmakers and their work. There are video clips. There's additional information on a show's topic, links to mention websites or resources, just to name a few of the things that you'll find within show notes. So if you haven't been regularly going to view show notes after listening to a show, you're actually missing out on materials that will further the week's discussion, thereby helping you best live and lead your own documentary life. So after today's show, go to thedocumentarylife.com and start delving into show notes for today's as well as past episodes. It's just another way to be a part of our Doc Lifer community. To understand what the workflow process of my first documentary film was, you really have to start from the beginning. I was in Chicago working on the editing of a documentary feature. It was right smack in the middle of the winter, it being January, so anyone who's been in or lived in Chicago in January, well, you've got some idea of the, of the cold and snowy weather that I was dealing with. A far cry, mind you, from the, the hot and humid climbs of the documentary that I was cutting, my second edited doc that had taken place in Cambodia. Anyhow, it was around this time that I decided that I was going to Nepal to film the aforementioned once-in-a-lifetime journey of the goats. 
Up to then, I'd been working as a PA on a fairly meager income, and then this particular editing job was also quite low budget. So I was making even less than my day rate as a PA, a lot less actually. I had to sublet my apartment back in Portland in order to be able to make it all work, and believe me, it just barely worked. We're talking working and sleeping at the director's mom and dad's place, eating a lot of ham sandwiches and frozen pizzas and consuming loads of tea. Now, I was thoroughly enjoying immersing myself in the editing of the doc and really embracing my inner starving artist, but I think what really got me through those days and the many ensuing days of PAing on on vacuuming infomercials and running shoes commercials that ensued afterwards was the thought that I was going to be returning to Nepal, a country that I'd visited for six weeks a year or two prior, and I'd be filming my own documentary. At the time, I'd absolutely no idea how I was going to get there, or how I was going to raise any of the necessary funds, how I was going to be able to convince people, or how I was even going to get my hands on a damn camera, let alone any of the other requisite gear for a shoot like that. All that I knew was that I was going to do this. And I think that there's something important to note here. I never let myself think that I wasn't going to be going to Nepal to film goats and goat herders. Whenever I had a doubt in my mind, I quickly banished it and immediately visualized standing out somewhere in the middle of the the Himalayan mountains with my camera filming shit. I could be finishing up uh, PAing on an 18-hour day where I'd make a total of $200. You do the math on that, by the way. (laughs) You do the math on the hourly, it's a damn crime. And and, and running bags of garbage to the production truck, which which I'd then have to drive across town and then unload in the middle of the night, and and I'd just stop for a moment, and I'd think about goats and how happy I was going to be filming them in Nepal. And it would usually put a smile on my face. It literally drove me, and it empowered me to believe more and more that I was going to be making this film. And I actually share this because I think that this should be a massive part of the process of any and all of your documentary projects, but especially your first one. At least after that in projects, you'd have the experience and knowledge of having gone through the process of completing a film or two or three. So you know the process, you know what it takes. So that can give you great confidence and reassurance in the face of adversity. But with your first film, you don't really have that. Your confidence needs to come directly from you just being confident that you can pull off making a film. And that's not always easy especially when you can barely cover your rent, let alone the cost of a plane ticket, camera and sound gear, and, and everything else that you'll need you know, to pay for on your film. I don't care if you need to read dozens of self-help books, I did, or you need to listen to endless tapes about the virtues of positive thinking, I did. Whatever you do, you have to start and never stop thinking about your film and thinking and talking about it as if it's already happening because it is already happening. Talk to others who've also made films. Surround yourself with artists who have completed projects. Discuss process with them. Get inspired by them. But always remember to talk confidently to them of the film that you yourself are doing. Because even though you may not even have shot a single frame, you're actually doing it already. You're visualizing it. You're writing about it. You're dreaming about it. You're talking to whoever will listen to about it. I used to talk to the grocery store clerk about it while while I was waiting for for her to ring me up. You're doing everything in your power to keep believing and to keep moving forward. So that, my doc lifers, is the earliest but perhaps most important part of the process of doing your first documentary film. Another important part of the process, and was probably my least favorite if I'm being honest, though now I'm learning to embrace it more and more, of course, is the fundraising. Now, if you're just going to shoot a short about your niece's first swim meet, say, it it may not be necessary to raise a bunch of funds. You might be able to borrow a camera, maybe shoot an interview with your niece, film her meet, uh, shoot some B-roll of family and friends, and and then go and edit the piece on on iMovie, right? But for the purposes of our discussion here, let's assume that by by doing your first documentary, we're talking something more substantial, like, like, like say something longer than 20 minutes. In order to do this, whether it be for travel costs, gear costs, or crew costs, you're most likely going to need some monies. And then, I don't know, unless you're a trust funder or or you recently won the lotto, you probably don't have a ton of disposable income at your, well, at your disposal. So raising at least a modicum of funds is probably a good idea. I know, I know, it doesn't sound fun, totally get it. I know the word fun is in fundraising, (laughs) but it doesn't always feel that way, right? Here's the thing. You can surprise yourself, and you can actually make it fun. 
Plus, a lovely side note of the whole fundraising process is that just by the nature of doing it, you're creating awareness of your project. You're making people aware of your project's existence. And therefore, you're kind of holding yourself accountable. I actually really, really dig that about it. Once you really put it out into the universe, and certainly once you're, you're taking people's money for it, you now have this, this unwritten contract to make your film. That's not a bad thing. And you shouldn't be nervous about that. That is, of course, unless you're not sure if you can make the film or really want to make the film, which in that case, you've no business traveling down this road in the first place because you've already neglected to adhere to my most important first step, which is, you know, the process of visualization. So let's assume you're committed to doing your film. One of the biggest fundraisers that we did for my first documentary was putting together a day-long concert event with, with all kinds of different types of bands donating their time to play at, the, at this, you know, essentially what was a benefit event. And we made it into a cultural event with some local vendors setting up tables and booths with, with different flavors of foods, uh, some gifts and clothing from Nepal and India. There was a Cambodian dance troupe that opened up the day's events. Um, we had a famous Tuvan throat singer gave a, a, a rather elevating performance. We got a local distribution plant to donate beer and wine, which we would sell for donations. Uh, there were giveaways, which consisted of things like hotel stays, uh, paintings, photography services, gift certificates, you name it. These were all donations from companies that we, that we would auction off at the event. And, and people paid a single admission to get into the event. It was a pretty successful one in that we made a little money that paid for flights and accommodations, and we continued getting the word out about the film. We even made some connections at the event that would help us out financially later on when we got to the the, um, the post-production process. Other fundraising opportunities you might consider exploring are, are obviously grants, right? I was able to get a smallish grant, which which allowed us uh, or allowed me to do an exploratory trip to Nepal nine months before uh, principal photography. Uh, another another thought would be dinner parties. Uh, d- dinner parties. A lot of a lot of filmmakers do dinner parties. There's a great book by Maury Warshawski, who we've had on the show here. Uh, it's called The Fundraising House Party to How to Party with a Purpose and Raise Money for Your Cause. And of course, putting together a crowdfunding campaign, it's another great way to raise funds for your film. And if you haven't already done so, I'd recommend listening to episode 14, which is it's all about how to run a Kickstarter campaign. Even if you're running some other type of crowdfunding campaign, this episode, it's got a bunch of useful tips and tools for you. Another part of your process as a first-time documentary filmmaker should be writing. Writing and then more writing. Throw in a little bit of researching, and then loads more writing. I say this because writing allows you to make things more clear in your mind. What's the story you're hoping to tell? Who are the key players who can speak about the messaging of your film? Uh, What are the types of shots that you're hoping to get? Practice writing out and saying your elevator pitches, your your short and medium and and long synopses. Uh, The writing goes hand in hand with grant applications, of course, but also perhaps um, for a blog or a newsletter to your film. I actually started uh, a blog for Journey to Kathmandu pretty early in the process, and it was really another way of keeping myself focused and also holding myself accountable. Because, of course, if you're putting out a blog uh, about your documentary, you're putting that out into the world, well you're damn sure most likely going to make sure the film happens. It also keeps you mentally in the game and on target um, during any of your downtimes. So so when you're talking about the film with someone in the checkout line in, at the market or with someone who has, a, I don't know, a lot of money, you're confident about the things that you're talking about because nothing attracts more people to your film or to perhaps want to help you see your film come to fruition than confidence, excitement, and passion. There's just something about if you're talking, thinking, and writing about the film, you're communicating and exuberating that in spades. Is exuberating even a word? I'm not entirely sure, but I like it. And more than that, I'm confident and passionate about it. Listen, for me at least, when I take pen in hand and write something down, it kind of helps solidify things. It's it's a great sort of transferent of your thoughts on paper that, yeah, it, it makes things more real, more concrete, if that makes sense. Another part of the process for me is getting excited about the camera. And more than that, using the camera as much as possible before setting out to make your first film. This may seem like a no-brainer, but trust me, it's not always the case. When I purchased my camera for Journey to Kathmandu, I bought it just a few weeks before even leaving for Nepal. I didn't really get to know my camera as much as I would have liked to have before, before shooting the film. Sometimes, as was the case with me, you just don't have the luxury. I didn't have my money together for the film 
you know, really up until that time. So, so I wasn't able to purchase the camera as, as soon as I would have liked to have. Ideally, you'd want to get to know your gear like the back of your hand. The camera especially, it should be an extension of your vision, an extension of your arms in your hand. It's a tool that, that you're one with, and it is one with you. Yeah, well, like I said, not the case really with me. And making matters a bit trickier, I bought my camera, a Sony V1U. I bought it secondhand. So this should have been even more of a reason for me to have been using the camera as much as possible to learn its ins and outs. So so I'm not thinking about uh, menu items or I'm not thinking about how to change the color temp or ISOs on the fly in the middle of the shoot. It's all just kind of flowing, right, without much thought. Or, or in my case, making sure that everything on the camera was in good working order. Anyone who followed my blog or, or anyone who has seen the, the extras on the Journey to Kathmandu DVD knows that just days into shooting in Nepal, my camera would malfunction and stop working entirely. And wouldn't function again until I returned to the States and, and had it repaired by Sony, long after shooting, of course, had been completed. This was nearly devastating to the project. Trying to locate an HD camera technician anywhere in Nepal, even in 2009, proved to be, well, it proved to be a pretty impossible task. Very luckily, I was able to find a Nepali doc filmmaker who happened to be one of a handful of people who actually had a comparable camera, uh, the Sony Z1U, and he rented the camera to me, which of course is another lesson I'll impart to you. Always have a backup camera. <laughs> Even if it's just a small HD camcorder or, or some kind of DSLR, bring it as a backup for cases just like this. Now, I know it seems like a luxury, especially for most of us doc lifers who are working with pretty tight budgets already, but you, you just never, you know, you don't want to be caught in the situation that I found myself in. Try to give your gear some serious workouts and become as familiar with your gear as you possibly can before venturing forth with your shoot. And, 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 and you know what? Make sure you have a backup, uh, backup plan in place as well if you can. Another part of the process for me, and this will not be the case for those of you shooting in your own countries, uh, was locating my fixer and my translator. These were two of the most important people in my small documentary crew. So make sure to give yourself ample time to suss these people out. Consider reaching out to other journalists and doc filmmakers who have worked in the country that you're about to shoot in. They will likely have recommendations for you, often having had firsthand experience with, you know, a particular candidate that they recommend. That's what I did, and that really cut down on my search time considerably. I was able to set up times to meet potential translators and fixers within days of landing. And I was thankful not only for the efficiency of this, but it also allowed me to spend time with my guy, Raj Kumar, who I was hiring not only as a trekking guide and fixer, his main profession was as a trekking guide in Nepal, by the way, but since I'd hit it off with him so well and I thought his English was, was pretty decent, I decided he'd be my translator as well. However, after conducting a couple of interviews in Kathmandu before heading out to the mountains, it quickly became apparent that his translation skills really probably weren't the best wasn't his fault. That wasn't his profession. As I mentioned earlier, he was a trekking guide who just so happened to speak some decent English. And I got on really well with him, so I figured I'd be able to use him as the translator as well. But that wasn't really fair. So quickly, I, 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 and very delicately, I adjusted some things on the fly, and I ended up hiring a professional translator and let Raj Kumar do what he did best, which was be the fixer for the film and be the head person out, out in the mountains. These things that I've been talking about obviously were not my entire process for making Journey to Kathmandu. There was much more, like things that I did while shooting or, or what my post-production strategy or my distribution strategy was like, just to name a few. But I hope that by sharing just some of the process that I used on my first documentary film, those of you out there who are looking to embark, embark upon your first documentary adventure, like my friend Dean, who I mentioned earlier, hopefully maybe you'll have a slightly less painful time of it. Look, you will surely come up with your own process. You'll figure out what works best for you. But it's my belief that those who have come before us, they can always offer some valuable insight. So I hope that I've been able to do the same. If nothing else, perhaps you won't make some of the same mistakes that I did. That in itself, that'll feel really good somehow. Thinking that, that someone else may learn from some of my, I don't know, my foolishness. <laughs> Joking aside, you will make your own first time mistakes. The trick is to minimize them, and when those first-time mistakes do happen, make sure that they stay as that. First-time mistakes. 
Lastly, I'll just say that I'd love to hear a bit about your own process as a filmmaker. What are some of the things you like to do before, during, or after production of your film? You know, some tips that you might be able to share that can help the rest of us as we've moved forward doing our own films. I'd actually love to hear from you about this because it would be amazing to collect some of these doc lifer tips and put it into a shared document and, and put it up on the website or maybe discuss them here on a, on a future episode of TDL. So my email address is chris at barongfilms.com, C-H-R-I-S at B-A-R-A-N-G-F-I-L-M-S.com. And speaking of emails, I do believe that you know what's coming up after the break. The Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week, of course. Okay, hands up. Who here is living a documentary life? Would you say that you are? What does it mean to live a documentary life anyway? Well, we'll happily give you our definition. To us, living your documentary life means that you have crafted your lifestyle in a way such that you are able to make the documentary films you choose to make without it negatively impacting other aspects of your life, be that financial, your immediate relationships, or personal wellness. And furthermore, through the creation of your art, your existence is sustainable, creative, and fulfilling. Would you say this describes you? If not, is this something that you want for yourself? It was what we wanted for ourselves, and it took us quite a while to achieve it. Truthfully, there were many times we didn't think we'd make it at all. We were living in a world that was reactive rather than proactive, and it was costing us greatly. If any of this resonates with you, we'd like to help you find a better way. Because once we were able to honestly say we were living our documentary lives, we could look back and see what had gotten us there, and we knew we had to share it with others. We broke it all down and put it into Living Your Documentary Life, a program that helps you to craft your own lifestyle, relationships, and mindset in ways that empower you to make your best documentary films. You can find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife. This week, our Doc Life Community Question of the Week comes from Jorge in Barcelona, Spain, or as they say there, Barcelona. He writes, Hello, Chris. Thank you for your amazing show. Whenever I am at the gym or take the train to work, I listen to the Documentary Life podcast. It inspires me to the work that I am doing telling stories of Barcelona. I believe you know where I'm talking about because you discussed my city on one of your episodes. I am currently working on a doc short about skateboarders in Barcelona. You may be aware that it is the capital of skateboarding in the world. Curious I am for telling this story. However, you know, I am not a skateboarder myself. I've only done a few times, but I'm not very good at it. My question, do you think that it's strange of me to consider doing a documentary about skateboarders when I'm not really one of these people myself? Or should this sort of thing be left to the expert skateboarders to tell the story? Thank you. Please keep doing what you are doing. Your podcast and the guests really inform me to do documentary film. I am proud to be a doc lifer, Jorge. Nice. Well, Doc Lifer Jorge, gracias for taking the time to write to me, sending me your kind words, and for the question. First off, you are right, I have been to Barcelona. I shot a job there back in 2016. I absolutely loved your ciudad. In particular, I was very excited about how easy it was to get around the city. Whether by foot, train, taxi, or skateboard, the infrastructure was really impressive, especially for an older European city. Like you, Jorge, I'm not a skateboarder, but I was really impressed with how many types of people were, were zooming around everywhere on their boards, and that the city was super accessible for this. It's a sight to behold, and I can imagine it'd be really fun to film. So I'm not surprised that you'd want to tell the story of this in the beautiful city of Barcelona. Do I think that you need or should be a skateboarder to tell the story of skateboarders in Barcelona? Absolutely not. If that were the case... Can you imagine how many doc films never would have been made? Think of how many great sports documentaries never would have been made because the filmmaker wasn't, I don't know, a boxer or a, a cricket player or, or a snooker player. Think about all the, the investigative journalist stories that never would have happened if the doc filmmaker had assumed that because he or she didn't know about changing weather patterns or, or how immigration laws in the U.S. worked or, or the history of the conflict in Korea has happened. Think about if, if they'd, never, that I, they'd never pursued the, doc, the documentary because they, they just assumed they weren't experts in this field. That just wouldn't have happened, right? That's the beauty and very nature of documentary. Most of the time, we're not the experts on the subject that we're filming. 
In fact, it is often our own curiosity for a subject that moves us to make a film in the first place. We ourselves want to learn about a community, a culture, or a passion, or, or, or whatever. And so what we do is we immerse ourselves in the topic. We research the topic, and we surround ourselves with the experts in the field. I actually think that you're at an advantage being the outsider who's putting a lens to an activity or subject or, or group of people. Because if you're already on the inside and you're shooting a documentary, it's much e easier to perhaps miss something that might be of interest to someone who doesn't know anything about the subject. It's only human nature to see things differently the first time you've seen it. And conversely, if you're seeing something all of the time, it's only natural to miss something that others might find interesting simply because it's, it's long been the norm for you. I also think that being on the outside, it allows you the ability to, to see things with a little bit more objectivity. You can pick and choose the various story threads and, and people that you'd like to speak with, unimpeded by undue pressures from, from an insider group or, or even yourself. But sure, initial access to the community of Barcelona skateboarders, it, it might take some time. But I think that if you do your research, you start meeting some of the players, tell them of your intentions, um, maybe start shooting some preliminary footage, you'll soon enough be able to start getting into the community in a way that, that best allows you to film the story that you want to film. So thank you again for the email. And, and keep doing what you're doing, Doc Lifer Jorge. And, and please keep us updated on your doc film about skaters in Barcelona. That was the Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. If you've got any suggestions for the show or, or recommendations for documentary industry guests or, or you have a question yourself or, or have some feedback, email me directly at chris at barongfilms.com and your email could be on a future Doc Lifer Community Question of the Week. Again, that email, it's the best way to get your voice heard and the best way that I can tailor the documentary life to you. So drop me a line at chris at barongfilms.com. That's chris at b-a-r-a-n-g-f-i-l-m-s.com. We'll be back after another quick break. I'm your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is The Documentary Life. Brian, welcome to the documentary life. It's I feel like it's been been a little time coming. Um, uh, you and I have been kind of talking about this, you know, off and on for the past year. Uh, I'm excited to have you on the show. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me, Chris. Absolutely. I, I think what would be good, Brian, is to kind of start off by giving um, by giving listeners of TDL some a bit an idea of some of your background. Let's talk about your journey to documentary. Am I correct? Did I remember this correctly, Brian? That 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 you did you go to school for a while or briefly flirt with Brooks Institute? I did go to Brooks Institute. In fact, yeah, I, I went there after a year and a half or so of college. Okay. I uh, transferred over to Brooks and ended up graduating with my uh, BFA from Brooks. We had a recent guest on the show, John Manning. He's another documentary yeah. filmmaker. And yeah, he went to Brooks. And, and in fact, we talk about it on his episode a bit early on. Brooks Institute okay. was um, apparently, and I did not know this, was, was very well known for its underwater cinematography program oh yeah oh, yeah okay. they were famous for that when i was there ernie brooks the founder was it was a fantastic underwater photographer and so he sort of took that into his teaching and oh. the school was really well known for that but brooks yeah back to the documentary idea brooks is the the uh the inception of a very funny line that has stayed with me forever um and I, I realized sort of early on that I wanted to always make documentary films. I was, I remember being on the set of somebody's film that I was shooting for them and toiling for long, long hours on this really <laughs> silly, silly project. And just coming to the conclusion that I wanted to make films that were about real people in real situations. <laughs> and so I was, I was talking to one of my instructors and I said, you know, this, this is all great and everything, but I, I want to make documentaries. And he he looks at me and he says, so you want to make bug films? <laughs> exactly so you want to make nature films that's great bug films yeah. and your what was yeah. your response to that brian <laughs> i said well i think there's more to documentaries than just bug films but yeah generally that's what i want to do and how did you how did you proceed from there brian 
Um, well, I continued, you know, I, I finished up through Brooks, which was a fantastic experience because I, the thing that I like, you know, everybody says, if you want to learn how to make films, go make films, don't go to school. Right. But the thing that I liked about Brooks was the, the relationships that you cultivate with people and that particular school, you, it was hands-on from, from pre-production all the way through post. Yeah. So you had to do everything by yourself. Mm -hmm. And we were shooting film and editing film at the time I'm dating myself, but, mm. uh, you remember. definitely got a sense of, of what every step in the process was for every type of filmmaking. So commercials, documentaries, feature films, everything you were doing all by yourself, you know, with, with the help of instructors sort of looking over your shoulder. But right. I, I like that hands on. And then you could kind of find out what you really wanted to do and what, what aspect of filmmaking you wanted to focus on. It's interesting. That's, I mean, that, that really mirrors a lot of what John Manning said. He spoke very highly of, of Brooks Institute. He felt like going to Brooks Institute in many ways, in many ways allowed him to, to, jump ahead from your typical entrance into the film industry. You know, after Brooks, he decided, you know what? I've done a number of the positions. I know kind of, I, I know how they orchestrate. And he just started his own production company. I, I mean, I find that throughout the industry, um, people telling you, you know, don't, don't sort of work your way up as an assistant, you know, put yourself in the position that you want to be in and start making films at whatever level in that position mm. and then you'll you'll sort of find yourself and that's what i did as a cinematographer yeah. um i had a conversation with a, a famous asc photographer who i sort of became friendly with through mm. a job that i had mm. and he gave me that same advice he said if you want to become a director of photography don't assist just start shooting your own yeah. projects yeah right and right i i may have guessed you felt this way but I did I didn't I didn't actually know it until hearing it now and and in full disclosure to to my listeners uh god I mean how long have you and I known one another Brian is it been five years is it I think right around there five or six years yeah, yeah. it's been yeah it's been a while after Brooks you how did you end up okay so you had that thought of of you wanted to go make bug films how did you then uh, truly decide and how did you start incorporating documentary work into your life uh, you know i found i i didn't ever want to make bug films i actually had no interest in, in nature documentaries i was oh and so that that sort of became a driving force for me just remembering that instructor's question was sort of carving out the type of documentaries that i really wanted to do which are mm -hmm. social issue documentaries and so i wasn't sure how how I was going to go about that and and luckily for me it just sort of fell into my lap that um one of my first jobs out of college I, I came up and I was living in Portland at the time and and uh through you know referrals of people was told that there was a director in town who was looking for someone to shoot the opening for a cooking show and I met with him and he wanted someone who could shoot film and who could um you know make food look nice and so he and I met uh, went ahead and did that project together. Uh, and in the course of that, we, we were at a location at a winery in Oregon and, uh, it turned out that they wanted to make sort of a, a documentary of sorts, um, about a year in the life of their vintage, uh, of making wine. And so, uh, he and I spent a year basically after this one food show project, right. uh, we spent a year, um, documenting this winery from, from, uh, you know, the beginning to the end of a harvest and all the way through the process. And, and that was, um, that was really interesting because I, I learned then that I liked these stories about people doing, you know, following their passion, whether it be, um, just purely for passion or, or a business like this ordinary right. business. Excellent. So that's, yeah. that's kind of what, what made me realize that, oh, this, this is a viable way to make a living. From what I had been told always was like, yeah, you can go ahead and make documentaries, but you have to actually have a job, you know, in the meantime, so that you can support your documentary pursuits. And this was was really affirming because I knew that, no, there are ways that you can make documentary films and, and make money at the same time. When does sustainable harvest happen in the story for you? And and to give a little bit of background, Brian, it, from what I've ever understood, they were sort of your... Um, your breakthrough client, if you will, that allowed you to break away from the reliance on the freelance cinematography work. In essence, in other words, what I'm saying is it allowed you to, 
you know, have a company and now you have a client and you could do your dock work through sustainable harvests and not be entirely, um, not only not be entirely dependent upon the freelance work, but now you're, you, you've got a client um, which you can begin uh, your production company through. Do I have that right? If I don't, help me out, Brian. No, that's true. And I hadn't ever thought about it that way. But yeah, that, I think that Sustainable Harvest is a, is a client that I've had now for uh, over 15 years. And um, they were the first client that I that I took on as a production company, per se. And, and that was based mostly out of necessity because they, they were just kind of looking for someone someone to make films for them. Um, and they didn't have a budget to, to hire a whole team of people or a whole production company. So I walked in, I literally walked into this situation by walking down the street and meeting a friend of a friend who said, Oh, you have to meet this guy. So that, that relationship developed in a way. And they said, Oh, you know, we're, we're doing this trip to Guatemala. We want to make this film about this, this journey to Guatemala and what we're all doing there. And I, I went into it, um, as, you know, it, back to your question. Yeah. Before that, I had always been just sort of a hired cinematographer on projects. Mm. Um, but this came up, they, you know, as I had to sort of develop the concept, go and shoot the story, come back and edit the story. And I had never really edited before. So I was sort of learning everything as oh, I went. Wow. And, it, yeah. and it was a great, great opportunity to get back into that Brooks model of doing everything from pre-production ah, to post. Right, right. And so really fell in love with it. I, I just realized that it was so nice to not just go shoot somebody else's project and hand over the footage, yeah. but to have an idea of what we were going for from the very beginning and to see it through all the way through the edit. So in essence, Sustainable Harvest in many ways, not only is your first client through your company, Optic Nerve Productions, but they're also, um, it's the, it's the, it's the Sustainable Harvest work that really starts getting you in the mindset and then the practice of becoming an all around storyteller. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So sustainable harvest is a, is a coffee importer and the owner of sustainable harvest is a man named David Griswold who he has a, he has a love for what he's doing and he had sort of pioneered this really interesting business model in the coffee industry, which hadn't been taking place at the time. This is quite a while ago, and now it's it's very commonplace. But this idea of putting farmers directly in touch with the people who are buying their coffee, yeah. rather than going through several different intermediaries, and so he he was doing this business, and I, I was fascinated by just the sort of social component of the story, yeah. um, the the personal, the economic, the environmental, all of these great things that I had always had an interest in were, were sort of present in this person's business model. Mm. And so he and I started talking about documenting these, um, this way of doing business. And uh, we, he had sort of coined the term retail documentaries. Like, I want to make oh. documentary films that get in front of a consumer audience so that they're aware of what they're buying and, and the story behind it. Yes. Um, and so that's, that's something that I fell in love with immediately and have been pursuing ever since. Our connection, Brian, is through Sustainable Harvest initially, um, in right. terms of, in terms of working together. Uh, I, I had heard about this Brian Kimmel guy for a couple of few years and it was always, Hey, Chris, do you know who Brian Kimmel is? No, I don't. And you guys have a lot of, uh, you know, not only similar interests, but you're doing similar documentary type work. He's an owner operator. He's a camera guy. And, and there seemed to be, you know, there was obviously a lot of crossover and a lot of similarities between you and I. And I, I just kept hearing your name, you know, over, over through the course of a couple of years. And at some point I, I just felt like I got, I, I need to reach out to this guy and, and see who, who this doppelganger of sorts people keep talking to me about is. I'm so glad you did. Hey, absolutely, man. And, and of course we have struck up, struck up a great, a great friendship. Um, bound not only by documentary, but uh, you know, by the experience, the cultural experiences that we've had through the course of, of the work that you have through Sustainable Harvest, and so th that's how you and I initially know one another, Brian. So, so we obviously have a lot to be thankful for with with the Sustainable Harvest people. It's it's one of the jobs that that I greatly look forward to when they happen, and and and. And to give some context, it's generally about once, sometimes maybe twice a year, but more closer to once a year where they have sort of this conference and, and that you invite me to to essentially come work with you on. And it's never about 
it's never about the gig for us, is it, Brian? It's about, for me, I just look forward to it because I can go somewhere, go to another culture for two weeks and, and spend time working with other people from another culture with one one of the people that have has since become one of my better friends. And and for me, it's just it's just such a great thing to be able to do is go shoot film with you in in another culture. Well, I mean, that's that's the beauty of what we do, right, is that we're we're following and doing something that we love. And in the course of that, we we attract people who have similar interests and similar passions hmm. And, and yeah, the friendships, of course, are going to come from that, which, which is a really wonderful byproduct. It is. It, it, it really is. Brian, how do you bring sort of this documentary approach to your storytelling? How do you bring it to the work that you have with clients such as Sustainable Harvest or Travel Oregon? And I bring these up because they're two bigger clients for you. Um, I, you know, I think it's interesting. I, I'm actually a, a very shy person. And I think my approach is to not sort of come into a work situation where I'm filming something and and, and put my influence into something. Hmm. I'm much more prone to sort of sit back, listen to people, see what they have to say. And then just my whole intention with documentary filmmaking is, is to capture, you know, in the most genuine way, the intentions of the people that we're filming. And, you know, at the end of the day, when I'm done with the project, if it reflects, if, if they say to me, that really captures who I am, mm -hmm. then I have a huge smile on my face. Like I've, I've done what I set out to do. Right. So I, I'm always just trying to not get in the way of the story and, and be, be a good listener and, and open my eyes and, and, you know, capture what is appealing to me visually as, as the story unfolds. Because we all go into a situation and we all have sort of these preconceived notions yeah. about what something could look like or should look like. Or, but once we let go of those things and, and listen to someone's story, then we can start to see the world through somebody else's eyes. Right, and, right. And, um, and then, of course, you know, you're going to have the camera on your shoulder and you're going to be looking through the lens. You're going to put your own spin on it. But I think that initial step of being able to open yourself up to other stories is it's paramount to what we do. Oh, geez, they're packed. There always are. They say most of it's common sense. So I think I'm ready, yeah, considering I read half the book. So. Reality TV has been a big part of your life as well, Brian, whether you like it or not. <laughs> Why don't you tell us um, of, of your reality TV experience, how, how, how it first started out, and what that experience has been like for you personally and then professionally? Well, I'll have to correct you a little bit in that it hasn't, yeah. it hasn't been a big part of my life. Okay. I've always sort of dipped my toes in and, um, until recently. Yeah. Um, without a, ever sort of a, a full commitment to mm. to the genre. Mm. In fact, I, I'm I'm not a television fan really to speak of, and right. and I really have kind of a disdain for reality TV <laughs> in the way that it's it's come across. But to your question, I got a call from from a television producer in Los Angeles who says she got my name from from someone else who I work with in the industry, mm. and uh, that they were making this TV show uh, locally. Um, and it was steady work and, and, uh, she described the approach to me, um, as, as very much sort of a documentary approach, um, to the, to this television show. And I, I was skeptical because I had seen reality TV and I know how manipulated it can be. Yes. Right. But, uh, we had a long conversation, this producer and I, and, and over the course of 45 minutes or so, she had me convinced that this, this was a different kind of a show. So I, I agreed and I, I went on it and it was in fact very different. It, yes. it was very much a situation where there was a family that we were filming, uh, nearby Portland and they had been going for about a year or so already on the show. And the family was very, very used to cameras being around the rule of, of the show at that point was that the, the crew was to ha and the producers were really to have no interaction with the family. We were there mm. simply simply to just document what was happening. Mm. And, um, and I, I found as a documentary filmmaker in that situation, it was really kind of a wonderful experience because okay. I, got to, I got to shoot documentary style with people who were very comfortable with cameras being around, but right. did not interact with us at all. And, and basically <clears throat> sort of forgot that we were there and mm. were just living their lives. So in the beginning, 
of of the series it was uh it was kind of a nice experience the crew was wonderful the, the experience of of shooting documentary style day in and day out um in a very comfortable environment uh was was great you know we got into situations where the family i i could swear that they had no idea we were you know feet away from them because they were just so used to us being around wow and, and they were just living their lives sort of very naturally and, and that was that was a nice experience. I was like, okay, this is not what I had imagined reality television to be. I'll bet. I'll bet. Um, yeah. And so, you know, fast forward 10 or so years, it's been now since I did that. Um, the show has changed dramatically. You know, it's, it's highly produced. And, um, I, you know, I think as, as it has become more successful, they've just been, you know, pushed in that direction by networks and, and other factors to sort of have things scripted. Which, right. which is unfortunate. Right. It's a different but situation. That's, that's the way it goes. Yeah. And, the, and the show we're referring to is Little People, Big World. Brian, how, how, long, how long has Little People been on now? It's, it's, it's over a decade, right? Yes. I yeah, mean, I think, yeah, officially. Years or what is it? Yeah, they're officially in their 13th season. 13th season, okay. Yeah, okay. But, but they've done, it's been more years than that. Yes, right. Um, and and this most recent season was actually the first time that I, I came on in a more full time capacity as director of photography for the entire season. Right. Before that, I had only just sort of day played and hopped in, you know, when they had openings and when I had openings in my schedule, which was was kind of perfect for me. Is this a good place for people to practice their documentary skills? And if so, how is it? How is it a good place to do that? Initially, like what, as I was describing the very beginning of the yeah. show when I came in on, on the second season, um, it, would, it would be single camera in a room with, with you know, however many people were going to be there. Mm. And that was fantastic training for documentary filmmaking because um, you were all by yourself. <laughs> um, and, and you had to make sure that the scene was covered. And you had to sort of get a flow of conversation and following who was talking and, and think about how do you cover the situation with a single camera. Right. Um, nowadays, it's, you know, there's two cameras. Mm. Producers can step in and stop down things and, okay, repeat that, do this. So it, <laughs> it, that, the training that I had sort of loved about being on that show now is gone. And it's yes. very formulaic. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's hard to miss things. Whereas before... It was happening, and if you missed it, you missed it, and that was it. You could not ask them to go back and repeat things. Right. You couldn't say, "Wait, hold on, I got to get a shot of this." Don't say anything, you know. It, it, so that was really kind of a wonderful experience to be on the spot. Man, like that. I'll, I'll bet. You know, my experience with Little People, Big World, as you know, was was certainly far more um, the latter experience, the more recent experience that you're talking about. You know, multi-camera. You know, producers in the back watching the cameras and in your ear asking for sp specific things and and stopping the flow at some at, at times and having you know talent repeat yeah. things. Uh, what you've described in the first that that second season that you worked on it, uh, that sounds actually pretty optimal. I think I would have really appreciated that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, if uh, you know, I would say to anyone who uh, has an opportunity to to work on a show that is in that capacity, that is you know, truly sort of reality television where you're a uh, single camera by yourself and, and capturing things as they happen without, you know, producers uh, putting their fingers in it. Uh, it's a great experience. I would, I would recommend it. There's no culture in the world that spends less on food or more on medicine than the United States. So to me, it's a painfully obvious truth. You can pay the doctor or pay the farmer. There are so few farmers in the United States now that they're not even included as an occupation in the census. We're lumped with all other, less than 1% of the population, and yet we're expected to feed more and more and more people. Your first full-length doc, your first feature-length doc, Brian, was Ingredients. What's the film about, and how did Ingredients come to be? Uh, Ingredients is sort of was, at the time, sort of the, the confluence of, of a lot of my work. Mm. Um, in the, in the food space, in the coffee space. So I, I had been traveling around the world and, and telling stories about coffee producers, coffee farmers, who were finally making connections to the people who were selling their product in the end. That idea that I had come to 
uh, from coffee and, and looking at the relationship between farmers and coffee roasters yes. just translated perfectly to the, the farmer chef story that was yeah. taking place here in Portland. Yeah, of and so I, I looked at it and, you know, I, I was like, oh, this is great. Somebody should make this film. And then realizing pretty quickly, you know, nobody's making this film. So maybe it's maybe it's me. Maybe I should be doing <laughs> this because it's it's here in my hometown and I have I have the skill set. Um, but I just don't know how to produce a feature length documentary. So I have to go find a producer. Right. And, uh, in the process of talking to people and doing stuff, I, I quickly realized that if I wanted to do this thing, I, I would have to do it on my own yes. and kind of build the team myself, essentially. I think it was, it was, a maybe a, a bit of a unique situation in that the, the story that I really wanted to tell happened to have a very viable commercial component to yeah. it which is this idea of sustainable eating. Um, So, you know, I think if you're going to make, you know, a film about, you know, uh, injustices in the, in the prison system, it's going to be a much tougher haul to, to ask people for money for that because there's, there's not a lot of commercial gain, Mm. I think for people in in most stories. Um, So I I think that you ingredients is kind of a unique situation in that, you know, makes sense. Yeah. Let's talk about distribution for for ingredients a, a bit here, and 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 I and I've seen ingredients from uh, I've watched it via Amazon, so I know it's up on Amazon. What are other ways that people can see see ingredients? It had, um, you know, it's it's been several years now since the film is out, so it had a nice long, you know, several year run on yeah. on Netflix. Um, it was broadcast. Um, there are uh, several several different. Um, sort of uh, i think it's available on hulu there there's other sort of online platforms to watch it but it's been years and i've kind of um I've lost track of of where it is presently okay yeah but I, I know that it's still still available on amazon so uh you you spent some time with 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 peter broderick and his name is pretty well known in, in the indie film community brian why, why don't you tell us who peter broderick is and why he was someone that you wanted to approach with ingredients yeah, so we were we were fortunate uh, to be in Portland and kind of getting to the end of our filmmaking process and starting to think about finishing and distribution and had uh, the privilege of meeting Kurt Ellis, who had made a film called King Corn, which had done really, really well. And uh, it was it was a, a food film as well about industrial agriculture and and his journey in sort of growing an acre of corn and, and his experience with that. But he um, his film had done well, I, I think, in large part because there was a, a great distribution plan. And so when we sat down and talked, he said, if I could offer you one piece of advice to get on the phone and talk with Peter Broderick. Mm. And, um, and he sort of described this, this uh, new distribution model. You know, the old model being that you finish your film, you put it in the film festival, yeah. And you get approached by distributors and they say, we're going to take your film. And you say, okay, great. And you give all rights to this one distributor and mm. they do everything. Mm. Theatrical, home video, uh, one-off screenings, um, DVD sales, everything. Yeah. And educational. And so Peter Broderick said, "What? that's ridiculous. Nobody can do all of those things well. <laughs> why, don't, why, why don't we carve up? the distribution rights so that you don't give all of your rights to one entity. You find, say, uh, an educational distributor who's really, really good mm. at environmental films. Mm. And you find a television distributor who has certain skills or, or an audience that works for you or, a, a you know, a, a deal that sounds really appealing to you. Um, and I think that that model, as, as he was able to really sort of eloquently and, and quickly show that model is, is much more beneficial to filmmakers. Mm. Um, the chance of you making, you know, a, a decent amount of money through one distributor who's just going to do everything for you, <laughs> just statistically was was not very good. You all you had to do is look at the numbers and realize that you're going to benefit more if you're finding people who who are going to carve things up because right. you're just going to get better deals and you'll be able to sort of tailor those deals to what you want. Yeah. So that's that's what we did. I, I had a, you know, I, I didn't spend a, a ton of time with Peter, but um, you know, we had a great initial consultation. He sort of set me on the path, and then he was just there to sort of um, help me through negotiating specific deals with specific distributors. 
you know, and in some cases warned me off of, of working with certain ones who right. he had clients who had bad experiences. Um, so it was just, it was so nice having never gone through that process and never even considered that whole process wow, right. to have someone who had tons of experience, um, and, and great advice. Why should someone, why would a first time filmmaker or a second time doc filmmaker, why should they speak with someone like, like Peter? Well, I think, you know, we're filmmakers, we're not distributors and, and that's a whole different discipline. So, you know, in, in my experience, I had, I had no idea what to expect yeah, and what right. was, what was fair and what was not. Mm. And so just having that, that voice of experience is, is worth an incredible amount, um, you know, financially, really, because it without that sort of uh, seasoned look at a contract, um, you have no idea really what what you're going to be in for. I think it's the the thing that drew me to filmmaking was the collaborative process of it, knowing that you're not going to do any one thing mm. incredibly well. Mm. You're going to, you're going to bring in people who have, have a different perspective, who have a different skill set and experience in something that you don't, and they can add value to your project in that way. And I think, you know, the distribution consultant thing is, is just another one of those, like a, like an incredible sound designer. It's just someone who's going to add that experience and that voice to your project. Yeah. Brian, one of the last things I want to talk to you about is this process that you go through to decide what the projects are that you do that that you want to work on, and what the projects are that you're going to um, basically spend the next you know three, four, five years, or however however long on. And 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 what I'm speaking of is, can maybe you can help us understand what the importance of spending this time truly time in pre-production and research and i'm talking about a lot of time and, and you'll get into this before you can even decide you know what this is a film that i'm going to invest my time in I, and i'm glad you asked because this is uh this has been a, a long period for me yep. without having made a, a feature documentary right uh made several shorts over the years um and i've been you know for a while after i made ingredients is like okay that was that was a really interesting experience and went on a much longer than I thought on the back end in mm. terms of distribution and, and, you know, attending screenings and traveling and talking about the film. Mm. And I kind of wanted, you know, just a break from that. But over the years I've gotten back to, okay, it's, it's really time to make another film. And so, you know, looking at what stories stick with you and continue to stick with you, you know, after you have an idea and then weeks go by and months go by and perhaps a year goes by. And if that film is still, you know, in your head when you wake up in the morning, uh, then it, that's telling you something and it's, it's worth pursuing. And, it, and at that point, looking at the viability of the project about not only are, are there potential funding sources, are there, you know, companies that would stand behind this and would want to support this. Yeah. Um, but also are there, are there partners? Are there people that can help you sort of get the word out about the film? Cause it's one thing to, to fund and make a film. It's another entirely to have an audience for it. Yes. Right. And, and I think to, to understand that you're, you know, unless you're like a, a social media guru and, and really, you know, great in terms of generating your own audience, I, yes. I think to have, to have that support of organizations that are out there that are already doing similar work that can help, you know, sort of share that, Hey, if you're interested in, in our work and what we do, you're going to really want to see this film because it encapsulates, you know, a lot of what we're talking about here. And, and there happens to be a screening in your neighborhood and we're going to help promote it. So to, to realize you know, that there's this whole, universe of people that you need to sort of understand that that will support this project and, and that will help you sort of get it made and get it out to the world only then you know do you say okay yeah this this is the direction that i'm going and i've been very i've, I've gotten close a few times with right. projects that i've been really interested in and, and done a ton of research and done some travel on my own dime to go and talk to people and 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 in the course of doing that, realize for one reason or another, okay, this is, this is uh, the pieces are not quite fitting together, and this might be a struggle. And so I'll just I'll go back to the drawing board, and I'll, I'll see if there's something else. 
so it's it's hard to let go of those ideas but oh, i think man. you know it, it valuable in a way because you're not going to you're not going to go out and spend your money or other people's money on something that won't be as as good as you want it to be or as effective but what's the fine line there brian because at at what point do you at what point do you realize oh, you know what oh, I've spent a few years on a couple of a few different projects that, you know, I, I and, and, and maybe I spent three to six months researching and traveling and talking to to the experts in the area. And, and now a few years have gone by and, and I haven't really committed to a project. Is there I guess, is there a danger of not committing to a project? Do you worry about that? Yeah, I, I don't know. I believe in magic in a way. I, mm-hmm. I believe that you know, as you're doing something and then pieces start clicking it, it's like any relationship. If, 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 uh, if the chemistry is there, it's going to be there and, and things are going to work. And, and if you're struggling with it, if you're fighting it, if you're forcing things into holes that they don't fit in, then, uh, I, I think it's valuable to, to be able to walk away from it. But I, I do believe, I, I believe that, you know, the next project for me will, will be that project where the the pieces are, are clicking. You're having a conversation with someone about story and they're saying, oh my God, there's this funder out there who's looking to fund this exact thing and they <laughs> introduce you, right? So I, I, you know, I may be completely naive, but I, I had that experience with ingredients and yeah. so I know it can happen. And uh, I've, I've seen it happen on other people's projects. Um, and I'm, you know, we can talk about this perhaps later, but I, yeah. I'm on the path to another one, and I feel like you know pieces are starting to click again, and so oh, I, I I enjoy that process, you know, and and for me that's that's that is uh you know sort of our our journey of discovery is yes. not only just making the film, but also sort of cultivating the relationships that allow us to make films. It's interesting that you pointed out that you actually really enjoy the process of the research and the pre-production that, and, and, and really the decision-making that goes behind figuring out um, if, a, if a project is, is going to be worthwhile and you're going to spend uh, you know a bunch of time on. Um, that's really interesting because I think it, having known you, I can see that. I think you really do enjoy that. And I can see how one, one would enjoy that. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm definitely at a, at a point in my filmmaking career where I'm going to be doing, um, and I certainly already have in some levels, be doing an awful lot more of that. Whereas prior to this, maybe, you know, five and 10 and 15 years ago, I jumped at whatever opportunity came my way. Uh, I jumped on every project. I just, I tend to be a pretty excitable, kind of passionate kind of guy. And so I can get behind a lot of projects, but I, I really am starting to more and more see the value of taking one's time um, in properly uh, researching and properly figuring out if um, if the pieces are gonna are going to fit if that chemistry is there is there like you're talking about as opposed to, to as opposed to forcing it. I had an interesting experience, and to that point, um, I, I was working on a documentary project which I had just sort of jumped into because I, I really believed in it. And, and it was important because it was it was about a woman who was quite elderly and, you know, I didn't know how much time I had. So I, I got on an airplane and went and, and filmed her. And, and as part of the, you know, story discovery, I, I was looking at other, you know, elderly activist people and had had the honor to, I approached Pete Seeger and he, he he said, yeah, come and talk for sure. And so he and I were talking and, and he said, this isn't going to be one of those things where you like, you come and you interview me and the film never gets made. And we've had this great conversation, but you know, the footage just sits on the shelf, is it? And I said, Oh no, no, of course not. You know, that would never happen because I'm going to make this film. And you know, of course (laughs) I didn't make the film (laughs) Um, (laughs) because it just, it, it was too, you know, it wasn't well thought out enough. Um, I wasn't at a place where I was ready to make that film at that yeah. time. And it was a great experience. I turned it into a nice little short film. So okay. it, it did get out to the world and, yeah. and had some exposure and, and his, he was part of it. So, I, you know, it wasn't entirely sitting on the shelf, but, it, but that really stuck with me. I'll bet. And that the, these people's time who you're involving in this project to everybody on every level, that time is valuable to them as well. Mm-hmm. And, and to make sure that if you're going to commit to a film, that it, that it, you see it through all the way to the end and then it gets out there. And that that's important to me. 
It's important to me too. I, I'm glad you brought that up. That that's actually never been brought up on the show, and uh, I know that I I always tend to feel an immense responsibility for films that I work on, for not only the crew that I'm working with, but obviously for the subject matter that you, that you spend so much the subjects that you spend so much time with. Um, you're absolutely right. I, I I'm glad you, I'm glad you brought that up because I feel that sense of responsibility myself. As we wrap this up, Brian, I, I know that you've listened to the, to a number of episodes, and I thank you so much for that, brother. Uh, Absolutely. How is it? You know that that we ask this question towards the end of a lot of our com, uh, uh, the shared conversations that we have. If I were to say to you, Brian Kimmel, how is it that you live and lead your documentary life? How would you answer that? Well, I, I try not to be dogmatic in in how I approach documentary. Um, it, you know, I, I pursue my own documentaries and, and those stories that I'm truly passionate and, and truly want to be involved in. Yeah. Um, but I also open myself up to the idea of, of making money doing what I do and and looking for organizations or other groups that have stories to tell that I can do in a, in a manner that I, I feel like sort of fits my documentary style yeah. uh, and, and go and... and um, get those jobs and, and, um, sort of, you know, apply all of my documentary filmmaking skills to, to that work. Um, and if it's, you know, it's commissioned work and you're having someone who says, yes, this is, this is what I want or no, change this, change that, just sort of adapt and realize that, you know, you're doing this, um, because you, you are aligned with the work that you're doing and, and the people that you're doing it for. So taking those same sensibilities and, and applying it uh, whether it's your own project or whether it's somebody else's, uh, has has been a nice balance for me because I've been able to to turn this into a living. This is this is all that I do. I don't have a side job, um, and I feel really fortunate that people are willing to to pay me for the talents that I have, um, and then I can use use that and sort of build up you know the relationships and the bank account to to where I feel comfortable to to. Uh, go and make my own films. Brian, you are my brother, and I am so glad that we finally got to kind of lay this down to tape, if you will. And I can't wait to share this with the world because you have a lot of a lot of great things to offer. Your wisdom and insight has always, um, and and your humor, of course, has always has always <laughs> been a uh, a big boon to 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 my prof- uh, personal and professional life. And so, yeah, man, thanks for being on the show today. Well, thank you, Chris. It's really a pleasure. And I, I'm so appreciative of what you're doing and, and bringing this community together in the way that you are. It's, it's been a wonderful experience. Thank you. Thanks, man. Thank you very much. Don't forget, if you're looking to live and lead a documentary life, you need to head over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and take a look at our Living Your Documentary Life program. We'll help you craft your lifestyle so that you are able to make the documentary films that you want to make and live the doc life you want to live.